This episode of Money Reimagined is sponsored by CME Group and PayPal. There is a ridiculous amount of data that flows online, the vast majority of which is utterly useless. But mm. it's very hard, even with AI, to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, similarly, when it comes to what you can see on a blockchain, you can see a lot. But if you don't know what you're looking at, it's not that helpful. Now, what's really interesting is all these different analytics firms and, and people in general have access to the same information online on a block of software. They can go look at it. How they analyze it and what they think it means is subject to interpretation. That is also true. One person might see the smoking gun document in the stack of boxes and recognize it for what it is. Another one might completely miss it. There's something about journalism that's hard. One of the things is how do you pay for it, right? How do you, how do you pay for good journalism? Because it's much easier to get somebody to pay you to write something in their interests than to get somebody to pay you to write about something that is either not in their interest or might even be directly against their interest. And advertisers and sponsors, are, they're trying to get their own word out. They're not necessarily in support of what you're doing. So you have to build this model around a trusted brand that for the sake of reaching readers and reaching others, it grows and is therefore a forum in which advertisers want to be, even if they have no control over it, right? The, the church and state challenges of journalism, we know it well. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. A reminder, you can listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at coindesk.com with the subject line, Money Reimagined. This week, Michael and I are back together again for one of our The Two of Us shows. Something I've been thinking about a lot based on my experience in the last couple of weeks is the role of the press in all of this and everything to do with policy, with crypto, and really with new technologies as a general matter. I was asked last week to comment on, among other things, the speaker election of the United States House, uh, terrorist financing of crypto, and of course the Sam Bankman-Fried trial, which thankfully is now concluded. What all those things have in common is that the press does play an outsized role in public perception of what is happening with those issues. And I thought, who better than our very own Michael Casey to weigh in on this topic as a general matter? Michael, over to you for some initial thoughts. Well, I mean, first of all, we journalists don't like to actually be the news. We like to cover it or get very uncomfortable when it's you know, about <laughs> us. But too bad you've roped me into this now. So I'm uh, I'm having to talk about us and me and, and journalism. And it is a subject near and dear to my heart. I just want to make the, uh, and this is obviously a little bit of a plug, but I think we deserve the right to do it. It was exactly one year to the date that when Sam Bankman-Fried I'm sorry, Sheila, we have to say that name one more time, uh, <laughs> was convicted last Thursday. It's one year to the date from then when Ian Allison's very important story about Alameda's balance sheet uh, was published, which really did sort of set things off and led to the collapse of the FTX empire and, and everything else. People probably know as well, Coindex has had a difficult year. We've had a very difficult year in terms of revenues and everything else. And so there's been a very stark uh, reminder of why we do what we do and how difficult it is, right? It's, there's something about journalism that's hard. And one of the things is, how do you pay for it, right? How do you, how do you pay for good journalism? Because it's much easier to get somebody to pay you to write something in their interests 
than to get somebody to pay you to write about something that is either not in their interest or might even be directly against their interest. And, you know, advertisers and sponsors, are, they're trying to get their own word out and not necessarily in support of what you're doing. So you have to build this model around, you know, a trusted brand that for the sake of reaching readers and reaching others, it grows and is therefore a forum in which advertisers want to be, even if they have no control over it, right? The, the church and state challenges of journalism, we know it well. But I think in, in, in our profession, certainly in the crypto media world, it gets harder. I've, I've never liked the idea that Coindesk is considered uh, a trade pub. I, I think we are something far bigger. We're, we're covering an emergent technology and an emergent idea, really. Something far bigger than just, say, writing about the aeroplane industry. Nonetheless, you know, it so happens, as much as we'd love to have advertisers from right across the spectrum, we tend to get crypto advertisers, people who have a vested interest, direct interest in the stuff you, you're writing about. We basically <laughs> contributed to, I think the truth would have come out anyway, but, but clearly Coindesk's reporting around FTX you know, played a role in the implosion of not just FTX, but a lot of the, the business around that, which then resulted in you know, slashed marketing budgets and everything else, which made it harder in many respects to, to be able to continue what, what we do. We, we do, we always do, we stand up for what we believe in, we keep fighting. But well, I'm just raising this to show that I think in crypto journalism, it's especially hard. There's not a sort of a set, you're, you're sort of very much at the whim of the industry. And so how we stake out this ground, this higher level position, when we know there are so many scams, there's been so many challenges and the public perception of this is, um, you know, is, is not positive, right? It's our view that airing it all, keeping making people accountable is critical because that's eventually how you'll have the public perception improve because we'll actually keep the bad actors out. Um, but obviously, vested interests will want us sometimes to keep our mouth shut because doing so, uh, they see as undermining them and the, the industry's uh, perception. So. It's not fun sometimes. Come under a lot of attack from all sides. I, I do think, you know, Coindesk has won three awards as a result of that coverage, including last month, the Lobe, which is it's just essentially the Pulitzer of business journalism. I think that has helped people to understand the importance of what we do. But there's always tension. And there's been a lot of it in the past year. You've been a journalist for for quite a while now, um, without invading either of us. Um, you know, <laughs> how have you seen the practice of journalism change over time? Because one thing that was very interesting to me to observe over the last couple of weeks was just, I don't know if it's this sort of impulse for fair and balanced, you know, quote unquote, reporting or whatnot, but sometimes facts are facts. And, and it almost felt like, especially in the case of sort of the terrorist financing there was this desire on the part of many publications to lean into aspects of that story that, that really weren't the main event. Now, you have to contrast, it's very interesting about this, and, and the juxtaposition, I think, of these two things is important to understand contextually. So you had the press, in some cases, going very hard after crypto as being really responsible, I would say, for some of the financing of Hamas that led to these attacks. Meanwhile, you had in Congress, you had hearings, hearing after hearing, where basically expert witnesses rejected that premise and said, if crypto played a role, which remains very much in doubt, it was minuscule compared to things like money flows from Iran or you know other kinds of uh, traditional financial flows, like other things that are very documented that were clearly 
uh, you know, complicit, if you will, in, in this in this occurrence and in, in, in these horrific attacks. So I'm just curious how you think, well, first of all, just a general comment possibly on, on how journalism has changed in terms of the obligations of reporters, like all that kind of thing. It's a general matter, right? Over the course mm-hmm. of your career, how you feel about that at Coindesk. But then also, what do you make of, of this kind of desire to, I, I don't know, um, I don't know if find a villain is the right word, but it does feel like black and white has become a little more predominant as a modality in journalism than I, I feel like it used to be, you know, 10 years ago, let's say. Okay, because there's quite a bit to unpack in, in there. I think, firstly, just stepping back again before d- diving directly into the um, terrorist financing thing, because there's a specific situation there. We're talking about my, my mm-hmm. former employer, the Wall Street Journal. I'm a little wary of going too deep into that. But I do want to say that I think you're right in a broad sense that journalism itself has changed without a doubt. I have very strong views on this in terms of how incredibly influential in our information economy the gigantic tech monopolies of that system are, right? Google and Facebook especially, uh, but, but others as well. And it has had a subtle but very... Uh, transformative impact on the nature of what media is. I am old enough to have actually, you did, you did sort of out us here. I, I started my career before the internet was actually a thing, right? So I, re- I began reporting when there were just newspapers. There really wasn't any digital concept around what we delivered to the world. So I worked for a physical newspaper to start with. And then pretty shortly after I started, the internet came along. But it really wasn't until social media that we saw the tremendous impact that it was was having on us. When I like to say, you know, we went from uh, already it was a difficult world where you're having to balance or let's say serve the interests as as an institution, not as a journalist, but media organizations serve the interests first and foremost of their readers, their audience. And secondly, they serve the audience of their advertisers, right, through creating the right sort of forum that advertisers could comfortably advertise in. Now, whether we like it or not, we, we have a third party that we're having to constantly serve the interests of. The algorithm that runs, you know, Google's mm-hmm. ranking system, the algorithms that, that, that set and choose the curation structure of social media. So whether we like it or not, we're playing to that. Every, you know, every major news organization now has a number of SEO experts on the team, search engine optimization people, who work with the newsroom to figure out what's the best headline that's going to get the right attention? What are the stories you should be focusing on that are gaining attention, that, are, that people seem to be interested in at this particular moment in time? How to place them, what kind of you know, images are going to get attraction, whatnot? All of which, let's face it, is a distortion of some form in the curation process of what a news, you know, what news prioritization is. Look, News selection has always been a subjective process. It's always been a process where we have obviously tried to attract readers, right? But you've also, we've also been able to, I think, with having to serve just those two masters, it's been an easier time being able to stand up and say, this is real news. This matters. I'm covering this because it's important for the world. Now there's this third factor, and it really is, is dramatic because you know, eyeballs are being taken from us all the time by alternative, you know, attention-seeking things. I often cite this one case that I think was, for me, revelatory. I suddenly realized how bad things have come and things have gotten worse since. But 
This was 2016 when BuzzFeed came out with a story about these teens in Macedonia who'd set up a website. Uh, they lived there in a little town called Velas, and they were running stories that said things like Pope Francis uh, endorses Donald Trump and birth certificate for Obama found in Kenya. And there was even some, some that were actually aimed at liberals that were saying things like, you know, I think there was one like massive migration of, of Democrats to, to Canada or something like that. The refugee story. Of, you know. And they were designed to specifically land inside Facebook groups that were solely these uh, conservative groups or, or Democrat only groups. And just to really get people riled or excited or whatever. So there were clicks and likes and shares and reposts and everything else, all of which drove massive amounts of traffic back to this little website in Vellus. And these kids made a decent living on, um, you know, programmatic ads, Google ads that were running in there. And it was just like, oh my God, we're being, we're literally being competed for those eyeballs that we're trying to get by people who are just making stuff up. And they're making stuff up with, with zero cost. Like just, there's nothing. Whereas a news organization will put into place a hierarchy of editors, a legal system. They'll pay for people to go to places. There's, there's an enormous cost structure in, in a traditional news organization that is literally built around trying to get the facts straight. That's, that's what you do. That's considered a cost of doing business. And now that is being outcompeted by these systems. So that's a major challenge. You can do it. What's changed in journalism, having to contend with that. It, it's made it much, much harder. And I think it's one of the reasons why I am absolutely passionate about why we need to fix the internet. You know, this structure is, is toxic. It's destructive to society. It is undermining our democracy. CME Group Cryptocurrency Futures and Options provide market-leading liquidity for Bitcoin and Ether trading. Participate in the Crypto Classic Trading Challenge from December 10th through December 15th for the chance to win cash prizes. Compete against your peers while test driving your crypto strategies in a risk-free simulated environment. Visit cmegroup.com slash crypto classic to find out more. This communication is not directed to investors of any specific jurisdiction or to recipients based in jurisdictions in which distribution is not permitted. It cannot be considered investment advice or results of market experience. Past results are not indicative of future performance. Trading derivatives products involves the risk of loss. Please consider it carefully. Full disclaimer included in show notes. Introducing PayUSD, PayPal's US dollar equivalent stablecoin. Designed for digital payments and Web3 transactions, PayUSD is the only stablecoin supported by PayPal. Built on Ethereum, it's compatible with the most widely used wallets, exchanges, and dApps, and fully backed by US dollar deposits and cash equivalents. Eligible US PayPal customers who purchase PayPal USD are able to transfer PayPal USD between PayPal and compatible external wallets. Send PayPal USD to friends in the US on PayPal or Venmo without fees. Shop with PayPal USD on millions of sites, wallets, and dApps. Convert any of PayPal's supported cryptocurrencies to and from PayPal USD. Whether you are a crypto expert or a newcomer to the world of digital currencies, PayPal provides a secure and convenient platform for your crypto transactions. Start exploring now at paypal.com PYUSD. It, 
and I think yes, it does lead to searching for the villain. It leads to the catas. That's clickbait, right? I can Hamas was getting terrorist financing, and so there's an instinct to run with those stories. And I think it's been easier for the the, the critics of crypto to demonize it because of the fact that journalists are always looking for something that's going to get a click, that's going to get an eye. So that is true. I don't think there's any way to deny that. But I also say that like on that particular case, I think my issue with the way that the journal handled it was, I don't think that when the facts came out, they should have corrected it. And, and I think they, they did, they did a correction, but it was measly and it was, it was just almost insignificant and tokenistic. And I think I'll sadly say that instinct has, has been there through journalism for years. I've always felt that journalists do not appropriately correct. We, we stand up that we have to correct things when they're wrong. But the problem I had with that story was that it was, the correction made no change to the fundamental point that it was making. The gist of the story was always still going to be read that $92 million or whatever the number was uh, of money had gone to, to Hamas through crypto. And the nuance of how elliptics correction of their own statement was was handled was was way too subtle to actually meaningfully change the story as to what it should be. In the journal's defense, I very much suspect that they got misled by elliptic and that therefore they quoted them for what they said. But again, that just shouldn't change anything. If the record is incorrect, it doesn't matter that it's you or the source who's wrong, it should be corrected. I mean, I would just, just believe that you just eventually do it. But you know, it's, it's also hard. The other thing that's difficult is that, you know, everyone was calling for them to retract the story, right? You know, to sort of remove the story. Like, that's also inappropriate because, you know, we, we, we live in a world where this stuff is already on, you know, in a digital world, it's near impossible to retract stories entirely. They li- it lives in so many different places. And there's this view that it's part of the public record, that that was part of what happened. It should be corrected. And every record of where this is, you try to correct it. But you, you don't go back and rewrite the history because it's part of the history itself is, is those stories. So it's complicated is, is the only way to you know, answer that. It is complicated. And, and something I think is really interesting, you know, you, you wrote a whole book on trust and how do we establish trust in these systems? How do we deal with this problem that, you know, anyone can come in and, and say anything? And, and in some cases, there are not necessarily hierarchical structures or other checks and balances, right, within uh, a system because they're not bound by the rules of journalism, you know, or the ethics of journalism or any sort of standards imposed by an external editorial board or, or whatever it is, kind of body. How do you do that? And so I know, you know, that one of the reasons you got so interested in blockchain was this concept of trust. And so just curious to hear you talk about that. There have been different experiments uh, in the, you know, journalism space using a blockchain for verification, things like that. So just your thoughts on the technology. Yeah, I've always thought there's a lot of potential to, to use these tools in constructive ways. You know, some of the work that Jonathan Doten and the Stalin project has done in terms of, uh, you know, sort of immutable records and, and the provenance of images, for example, to, to really be powerful ways to stand up both journalist work and evidentiary work in war crimes. And, and, and that's been, you know, really a powerful demonstration of the technology's capacity to prove these things in an era of, you know, the risk of deep fakes and so forth. I think that's especially strong. Look, if, if we can figure out ways to use blockchain to 
and people are, show the provenance of goods in a supply chain. I think there's real value in being able to show the history of what things were said and were. Now, it's often pointed out that you people can still lie and <laughs> record those lies in a blockchain. You can't stop the source of truth in that regard. But but there's a there's a capacity for, for all of that that record to be given a much more reliable, basically a history of where it came from. And I think that that should be helpful in our ability to, to stand these things up. I think it's sort of ironic in many respects that the battle over elliptic and its statements even exists because, you know, blockchain forensics are supposed to be um, valuable because there's this public open record that everyone can see. And I think we've, I mean, I'd be interesting to think, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Sheila, like whether we're talking about journalists or, or anyone else, the idea that we have this public record that should be really valuable as a way to establish these truths. And yet we've come to depend on two or three of these highly sophisticated yeah. Yeah. analytic terms. And then they become the source of truth, right? We, we've taken this thing and said, it's it's wonderful, it's public, you can do anything, but listen to what Chainalysis or Elliptic say about them. This is not to judge either of them, but to say that that in itself seems like you've, you've reverse engineered this system into creating trust in these trusted third parties yet again. You know, I have so much to say on this topic. So so I, I use this analogy a lot because it's one that people can kind of understand from having watched, you know, law shows over the course of the last 20 years. Okay. So there's this concept in litigation of what's called a data dump. And the idea is there's one damning piece of evidence in an email or something, right? That you know about and you are obligated by law to turn it over to the other side, to opposing counsel, okay, in a case. And I'm not talking about Sam Begman Fried here, although obviously there were plenty of smoking guns in that situation and more that came to light and will come to light if the second trial proceeds, regardless. What you do then strategically is you bury that thing in boxes and boxes and boxes of documents. And so this was literal before the advent of, you know, AI that could scan for things or whatnot. You would literally send over just boxes, like a room full of documents hoping that the needle in the haystack document would not get found, okay? Similarly, the thing about a blockchain, the thing about online data is that it's a garbage dump. There is a ridiculous amount of data that flows online, the vast majority of which is utterly useless. But mm. it's very hard, even with AI, to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, similarly, when it comes to what you can see on a blockchain, you can see a lot. But if you don't know what you're looking at, it's not that helpful. Now, what's really interesting is, in theory, but also I think in reality in this case, all these different analytics firms and, and people in general have access to the same information online on a block of software. They can go look at it. How they analyze it and what they think it means is subject to interpretation. That is also true, right? One person might see the smoking gun document in the stack of boxes and recognize it for what it is. Another one might completely miss it, depending on that person, their training, uh, you know, what they know about the case, the context, for all kinds of reasons, okay? So- it is not the case that you're going to look at the data and every single time come to the same conclusion. And that's something I think is not widely understood. And I think that lack of understanding is really, really problematic because you're right. In theory, everybody should see the information and come to the exact same conclusion. That's not necessarily what happens. And I'm not here to speculate or comment on what Elliptic knew or didn't know. I will echo, I find it, I, I found it ridiculous, if I may say, that it took two weeks to issue 
any sort of statement about this bombshell that was dropped. I find that irresponsible, to be very frank about it. Regardless, my views on this are not relevant here. When the statement was made, you know, it was kind of like a, that's not what we said, and, you know, sort of, sort of situation, right? But what is interesting to me is that nowhere... It, is there any sense that any of these reporters have the capability to understand organically what they're looking at here? Yeah. Right? The thing about, I think, the Loeb and Coindesk is what Ian got was essentially a balance sheet. And he's very well trained in reading balance sheets. So he could spot something was fishy. Somebody who was not trained in reading balance sheets probably would have missed it. And in fact, many people, including many internally at Alameda or whatever, presumably did miss it, Right. And didn't spot it. And he did because he has decades of years and years and years of experience looking at this kind of information, understanding what is fishy, what is not, what should it look like, etc. No reporter that I know of in mainstream media has that kind of experience reading a block explorer at a minimum, let alone parsing complicated data on wallet addresses and fund flows and whatnot. So it comes back again to, you know, what is realistic for people to understand? What is the responsibility, I would say, of a journalist to know what they don't know, which I do think is the responsibility of any journalist to understand what they don't know, to not overly rely on any source, but do independent investigation, which is certainly what Ian did in the case of the Alameda FTX situation at Coindesk. But it's hard. And I, I think about this even more in the context of AI, right? So AI, the wonderkind technology of the day, you know, new executive order from uh, President Biden, that apparently President Obama had a hand in drafting. I am fairly certain there is nobody in government who really understands AI. And yet, we're going to be crafting regulation around it. We're going to be, we're going to have journalists yeah, commenting. Really good analogy. Yeah. Journalists commenting on it constantly. And nobody has a clue what they're talking yeah. about. Like, most look, people I, in Silicon Valley don't understand AI. Most people I mean, in Silicon Valley have no idea how AI works. Yeah, I mean, is, yeah. It, it, we're reaching, we're reaching into a problem of even greater magnitude with AI because I think the complexity yes. behind how these LLMs work is is almost unfathomable, right? And in fact, we don't, we do, we, no one, even within those companies, seems to be able to adequately explain how and why they occasionally hallucinate, right? I mean, yep. that that is inexplicable is really a problem for the business of journalism, for the business of anybody seeking yep. the truth. So, so yeah, so that's just put that aside for a moment because that just goes- <laughs> The goes terrifying horror of it aside, okay. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's an interesting point about block explorers. I mean, we, we do tend to think like, you know, we've got folks who've got good, much better on-chain analytic skills than I do, you know, at Coindesk. And we think that that's, that's a strength that we really want to build out because it's something that, yeah, everybody in this day and age should be should be dealing with. And I think it's it actually speaks to, uh, you know, a, a sort of a bigger point that I hold around what is the role of journalists in the age of blockchains. You know, I think there's a way to take the traditional conception of the press as the fourth estate, right? This other pillar of society that is there to hold the other ones to account, essentially, and specifically government. And the traditional role is that you obviously hold companies and other institutions, but there's this big role of like, there's this thing, the public good, whether it's the environment, whether it is, you know, our laws, our uh, our rights, the commons, essentially, the cultural commons, the public commons, and that that needs to be protected from narrow interests exploiting that public good for their benefit. And corrupt politicians are the exact precise definition of what that is. So that's yeah. the traditional role of journalists is to go after that. In a blockchain, it's interesting, right? Like public blockchain, a permissionless blockchain, the public good is the ledger that all of us 
have access to and all of us should share. And even though you can establish, you know, a, a very appropriately decentralized network that prevents the prospect of a 51% attack or, you know, a double spend, there's all sorts of other ways in which that public could be can be co-opted, right? There was a whole conversation a number of years back around some influential companies within the crypto, the, the Bitcoin space, wanting to get get a change to the way that the you know the the amount of of space that was in each block, the, the block size debate, and it was seen as if it was in their interest. And in, th- in that particular case, the sort of the users mass actually ended up winning the winning the day, and, and they maintained the structure with this thin block size at the time. But it was viewed as if, okay, here we have this this overarching thing called Bitcoin that these powerful entities were trying to shift into their interests. And so there's all sorts of ways in which it happens. And you know, and, and then obviously then we talk about exchanges and things like that and what you know the likes of Sam Bankman Fried and, and Mashinsky at Celsius and these centralized entities do. And they do, they undermine the public good of the system that we're all supposed to buy into. So I think journalists in this case are protecting that. They're protecting this new decentralized system. And we all should be held to that standard. My problem is that the mainstream press does not even see that. They see this as, yes, they see victims and that's appropriate. They should be going after, you know, people who do bad things and hurt, you know, whether it's terrorist financing, or whether it's Sam Bankman-Fried hurting the victims of, of FTX. But I don't think they're conceptualizing it as if there is this thing called a blockchain that should be decentralized and should be governed in this open way that everybody can use and respect. They're looking at this purely from a, from a traditional mindset. And so that's a, a lot of the reasons why there are conflicts around this, because it's just, they're not, we're not even using the same language. We're not even coming at, coming at this from the same perspective. I think that's, and, you know, and, and here's one fine way to put it. Like, if you, if you talk to the IMF and others, you know, when they describe different types of currencies, they describe cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, as a private currency. And it's not. Like, who owns it? Who's the private interest that owns Bitcoin? And you can't have that conversation with it. Because no, 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 it can't. A public blockchain has to be issued by a government. A, a public currency has to be, this is a private. I was like, no, it's not. It's public. And that's just a mindset that we've got. We do not have people in that space. They don't. They just don't think like that, unfortunately. And they need to start thinking that way. I don't know how we get them to. But, um, well, but yeah. it, to me, it sort of <laughs> defines the problem in many respects. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because as things, as we see an acceleration in the pace of the emergence of new technologies, it kind of it leads to the question, it's not going to be enough to have a technology beat and have a couple of reporters who generically cover technology, right? Because being on the kind of like social media beat and being on the sort of decentralized technology beat and being on the AI beat are going to be completely different things that require deep expertise into business models, not just, you know, how the technology works or functions, but also business models and incentives and all this kind of thing. And it's going to be impossible for any individual to cover all of that. And, and I, I don't know that there is an understanding or awareness of that. Um, and it's interesting because you think about, you know, when you think about geopolitics, you have a Middle East desk and you have a, a you know, South Asia desk and an ASEAN desk. And in some cases you have like a specific desks in, in regions of the world that are hotbeds of activity, right? But in tech, which is similarly fiefdomed <laughs> to make up a word, you don't really have that same approach, even at outlets that, that have, you know, well, Journalism is certainly not a lucrative industry at the moment and, you know, flush with cash. Nevertheless, 
to cover these things adequately, you do have to have experts in them. And the same thing is true, of course, in the policymaking environment. It's no different. You really do need to have an individual who understands the intersectionality of technologies, but also each individual technology in its own way. And how do you find those people, especially when the private sector lures, you know, lures large, right? Looms large and and, and has a lot of lures to kind of pull people over. I, I don't have an answer to it, but I think we're really starting to see, I think, the fourth estate um, is problematic in some cases simply because of a lack of understanding and independent ability to assess some of this. Now, the interesting point, of course, is that Coindesk does exist, right? And I should also name other other journalistic outlets that focus exclusively on on uh, on crypto and on digital assets. One imagines you'll have you know AI desk or whatever it is something that opens up that focuses specifically in in that technology. Maybe that already exists and I'm just unaware of it or it's it's burgeoning. Um, so it, it kind of leads to the question, do you need to have these specialized outlets that are focusing specifically and can get into the weeds on all of this and really understand the lay of the land, the different players, how they do or don't get along, how they do or don't intersect um, and can do, you know, kind of what Ian did, which is not just look at a balance sheet and spot something awkward about it, but also understand what that means for the industry and really know what a bombshell he had on his hands, right? Because that takes a certain level of dedication and expertise. I don't know, eager for your thoughts. No, I think the answer is yes, we do. I mean, I think it's, <laughs> and here's the, here's the thing, like, because I think that you've got, you've got people like Balaji Shinabasan, who I think is sort of out there now sort of saying, look, we don't really need mainstream media anymore because we've got these uh, decentralized communities who are going to out the truth. And there's this sort of whole narrative out there that really it was Twitter that that, that brought Sam Bankman-Fried down. And look, and it clearly played a role, right? Like there's no doubt, but it's also true that Ian's story set this thing off. And and But here's why this matters. It's not that, that there's not value in this sort of wisdom of the crowd, the crowdfunded, the crowdsourced information. It's, it is true. There is that as a force that we live in right now. There's two two very big problems with this. One is that like that crowd itself, as we know from the tribalism that exists in the crypto world and how this idea of the truth as being who's got the loudest voice and the loudest voice is actually who's got the most followers and then, and then actually who's got the most coins essentially, right? So you have this overwhelming mob-like way of, of, of defining the truth, which I just find really problematic because there's no one holding that mob to account. The theory would be that, well, the truth will eventually come out because the mob is big enough, but it's not the way it works. We just know this from the way that social media functions and the way it just drives people into these, these herds of opinion. And so it's almost like the, the beauty of the journalistic profession is that it's certainly not perfect by any stretch, right? There are really bad journalists out there and there are good journalists and everything else. But at least the journalism that I got raised in, there was this understanding that for all of its warts, there's this standard that you're supposed to abide by, that you've built entire system and profession around that. Is that profession being updated for this age? No, that's one of the problems. It's not able to contend with all these changes, whether it's crypto or AI or anything. And therefore, the standards and the models and the approaches just may not be up to scratch right now. But this idea that there's a, it, it's almost like the role of a, a trustee or a, a lawyer under oath, or a doctor under oath, it doesn't rise to the same level. I often wish that there had been a sort of professional body that kind of kept journalists in check in, in some respects. But there is an understanding that this is what you do. You're supposed to get second the other side's opinion on something. You're supposed to 
make sure that there's a number of sources that validate what you're doing and you do it and you verify it independently and all these practices that we have. And that exercise of doing so within the power of one entity or even one person doing it as a, as a solo journalist is just so different from this sort of mob truth concept. It's, 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 the, it's actually the act of having the responsibility of curating because every decision you make, every word that you write is a word that is displacing another word that could have been chosen or another fact that could have been in there or another person that could have been cited. The very act of writing a story is a curatorial one that is biased. But the act of biasing is what's important because you're doing so within the framework of a standard that you have to stick to. Whereas if I'm going to say, hey, the, the mass of thousands of people who are all you know, fanatically in favor of, of XRP are going to say what's true about something, and that's going to be, by virtue of the breadth of it, is going to be the truth. Yet none of them are being held to a standard, and every one of them is aligned around the same particular incentive to drive the price of XRP up. Then, you know, I'm sorry, but it's just not going to bring you the same result as having people for whom there is this very precise approach yeah. to how you do it because your interests are not aligned with it. So it's, it's like, and, and yet I get it. For years, no one trusts that. Hey, you're paid by, you're, you know, CoinDesk, you're owned by DCG, where you, we know for a fact that you've been writing only positive stories about Genesis. And, and we just stand back and say, just please read the record and you might see that that's not the case. And like if but only you were in our internal meetings. Where we yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, people go, no, we know it is because we know who your boss is and therefore it has to be. And, and, and you just, it's very hard to like just get rid of the, those misunderstandings because it's easy and convenient. Yeah. To assume that that's the case, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I we have to wrap, but I, I'll, I'll just say, <laughs> I guess a depressing note. There's a conversation we could definitely have about, you know, what it means to be a person of integrity in a world where structurally integrity has not become a paramount importance, right? And if anything, it is constantly undermined, and and I find that an ongoing challenge. Uh, I think it's a particular challenge for those of us in the crypto space. And, you know, hey, maybe we're the few and far between, but I, I, that's not, we know that's not the case. Now, there are plenty of people in this space who operate with extremely high integrity. And unfortunately, because there are many uh, famous, if you will, or Twitter famous anyway, operators who seem to operate with as negative integrity a thing, or the opposite of integrity. You know, there is an element, yeah, you know, where we exactly where we're we're swept with the brush with that same brush, and that is it is it's highly problematic. But I think now more than ever before, staying true, you know, to what is true is it becomes harder and harder and harder in in the world at large, but ever more important. And so I, I just have to say, I do think that journalists and and you know, again, I can't paint too broad a brush here, but good ethical journalists who abide by standard of conduct that's commonly understood in the journalistic profession are, are critical. The fourth estate is absolutely critical and crucial to cre not creating not just accountability, but also helping us sift uh, what is true from what is not true. And and again, that is only going to get harder and harder and harder. It's, it's already an almost impossible task. It's going to only become harder as AI becomes more and more predominant in, in what we see and what we're presented. Uh, so on that note, which is not necessarily the most cheerful one, but, it, you know, <laughs> I don't know that it's doom and gloom either, because I think it is about fighting the good fight to do that. That's certainly something you and the, and the good folks at Coindesk do. Uh, and it's something we try to do on this show. So uh, on that, with that note, I will say goodbye to all of our listeners and join us again next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. 
You've been listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Today's show has been produced by senior producer Michelle Musso. Our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is The News Tonight by Shimmer. We would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.